How many things do you think you have to remember to do your job effectively? Can your memory keep up? Do people influence your memory? Hi, lab mates. Welcome to the Social Learning Lab, a podcast about social learning at work. In today's episode, we explore the science of memory and metacognition. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Social Learning Lab podcast. Uh, we are here today with Alexandria Clapp, who is a senior content manager, learning technologies and sciences at the Association for Talent Development, which you may know as ATD. Uh, Alexandria is also the host of the awesome podcast, The Accidental Trainer, and if you haven't listened to it already, I highly recommend you check it out. There's lots of great stuff on there. Uh, she also comes to the world of L&D through somewhat non-traditional roots. Um, she entered through cognitive psychology and theater, which is really cool, and she has a working interest in memory, which... I could use a little bit more of these days. So Alexandria, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's always a blast when we get together. Yay, well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to chat with you today. Yeah, I can't wait. I think we can learn so much from looking outside of our immediate field and you are just a wealth of knowledge, uh, not only in cognitive psychology, but you're also a bit of a trend spotter in L&D, so I'm I know everybody's going to get a ton out of our conversation today. Yep. All right. Um, let's start with the easy stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about you other than what I just said in the bio? Yeah, I'll give a little, little background. I think you summed it up very concisely. I have always had this fascination with the science of learning and memory. I think it started in college. Well, maybe beforehand, I was just interested in psychology, but then I was exposed to the concept of neuroplasticity in college, and that is just so empowering and fascinating to me. I was a learner who didn't have to try hard, and things came really easily until they didn't, and then I <laughs> didn't understand why. And so as a young, stupid teenager, uh, my instincts were to just not try because then I could blame it on, on not trying. But it was just because I didn't have anyone like explicitly telling me the right skills and strategies that I needed to use to be a better learner. And I think that's the reality for most people. Like they don't really know the science of learning and metacognition and memory and it just... Uh, it's part of my mission now on Earth and at ATD is to help empower people by just being exposed to that information. I think it makes you a better, better individual learner, makes you a better contributor and a community, a better, a better just everything. So that's part of my goal. So I, yeah, fast forward to through my first jobs and things. I ended up at a, a nonprofit that did a little bit of applied cognitive science for improved learning outcomes. And mostly we did professional development for learning centers and schools. And we partnered with these organizations and also trained them on this proprietary kind of customized cognitive enhancement programs that you could do, which again was just helping pair people. Part of the secret sauce is just getting to work one-on-one -on -one with individuals and look at your cognitive profile and your learning goals 
and then help you, Nicole, learn about your working memory and like what are your goals in school or whatever it was and teaching you like reliable memory strategies, sort of revealing some of the strategies that you're using that may not be effective. Uh, So that was really, really fun. And I got to sort of grow and work on the training the trainers to deliver those programs. And then we couldn't keep adding training. So we're like, let's add coaching. And that was really, really fun. Um, And then while I was doing that, I kept going to ATD to do my (laughs) certifications. And then I ended up joining ATD and it's it's literally the best. I'm on the content team now and I just get to do all the same stuff, but for the corporate learning world. So helping trainers and instructional designers. And it's so rewarding and it's this community of people who are so good at this one thing that they do, but maybe don't know yet how to be a great trainer or a great instructional designer or how to manage people. And so, yeah, it's really, really fun to be kind of behind the scenes and sometimes on the front lines at ATD working on the books and magazines and blogs and conferences and webinars and videos and all sorts of really fun stuff. They definitely keep you busy. And we all appreciate that because the stuff you turn out is really just so wonderful for the whole field. And I've gotten to work with you back there, so I know you're doing a great job. So thanks. (laughs) Just to start with that. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for being part of our conference committees and helping be a volunteer to help review. Like we wouldn't be able to do think the ATD team wouldn't be able to do the volume of conferences and professional development resources and content that we do without people like you who are willing to partner with us. And often it's volunteer work to help better the field and put really awesome stuff out there. So thank you. It's a social experience. It is. (laughs) It's social. We, We rely on each other. It's a network. So I'm going to start us off a little bit backwards, if you don't mind, because you said some terms at the beginning of the conversation that maybe not everybody knows. Um, I know I didn't learn any of these memory terms until I stepped into the field and I had people saying, hey, maybe you should read some things. So uh, neuroplasticity is fascinating. Tell us a little bit about it, because not everybody may be familiar with that term. Okay. I am going to try to think of it in the most simple, the simplest way. Uh, It's your ability to make new connections. And I, I think I was mentioning to you before, I tried to be careful not to get too deep into the weeds of neuroscience, as fascinating and interesting as it is, because I'll go back to memory, I want people to remember if you're only going to remember like one thing, I I don't even want you to remember neuroplasticity. Like I want you to remember to start doing retrieval practice. Like I'm just going to say that right now. Just like give yourself opportunities to like teach other people or teach yourself and just practice, 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 practice if you need to know something. So that's what and I know that's like going totally like off in a different field direction to the answer for neuroplasticity. But Uh, Yeah, the ability to make new connections is 
again, really empowering to me. Uh, I read this book. It's called Neuroplasticity and the Power of Mental Force by Jeffrey Schwartz. And it is filled with really amazing studies and examples of like first discovering neuroplasticity. And one of my favorite stories in there is about people who had had strokes. And um, well, so the research actually, it was on monkeys and the Silver Spring monkeys, it's like PETA was formed after this, like <laughs> this research. But the work that they did, they deafferented like monkeys' arms. So they severed the connections and then they retrained their brain by um, restraining their other arm. They retrained the connections on the arm that had been, like the connections had been severed to be able to work again. And they took that research and applied it to like what we use now for stroke rehabilitation therapy and things like that. And there's there's so many examples, like it's not just motor connections and sensory connections. Um, there's There was stories about people who had OCD or anxiety and they were able to rewire their brain, so to speak, to stop doing these impulsive things that they had been doing their entire lives. So just that to me was so empowering that whether you've had something so traumatic, like traumatic brain injuries, that um, so when I worked at CogX, one of the first uh, clients that I worked with, he had damage to his frontal lobes. And so he had trouble with vis visualization. And we worked on we worked on memory strategies, strategies to help him build back those visualization skills. And he worked on things like the method of LOCI, which is a technique you can use to take advantage of locations that you know, and then you drop in cues into those locations to help him remember things better because he was having that trouble with that. So it was just, yeah, I, it, I'm probably going all over the place again. I know you just asked about neuroplasticity, but I can't help but just start to talk about how it made me excited about just all the possibilities with memory. Very cool. Yeah, I will definitely be looking at that book. It sounds really interesting. And but taking us back to memory, because that is ultimately your field of expertise, the thing that gets you going. Um, how can we think about memory and I guess what it means to do social learning? I'm going to give you that big, open, broad, vague question to, to go with. Yeah, that's okay. I was thinking about this myself where I'm like, how can I make the case? And I think that it's helpful for folks to know about yourself as an individual learner and a self-directed learner to fit in to your community and with your peers in a social learning context. And also, if you, if people have the misconception, right, that the memory is like a filing cabinet or your computer where you open up a file and you grab it and then you close it when you're done. And memory doesn't really work like that. Actually, every time that you go and grab and retrieve that information, you're changing and recreating that memory trace. Hmm. And I always grapple with like, what is the best analogy 
to so maybe that will be part of the assignment is like people coming up with what is your analogy for what memory it is is so I've tried like is it like a spider web because you're strengthening the memory every time like a new strand is created or is it like a running trail where it becomes uh, stronger the more trodden the path is or is it like a I, and I know I was giving you this example when I used to work with students we would talk about a Jenga tower because there's multiple aspects to this and in that example I was using Jenga towers because the more knowledge that you have, the more your your knowledge amasses, your mountain of knowledge or your tower of knowledge. Um, but like in, in Jenga, you can pull blocks out from the bottom and maybe it's sort of weak. And I think that can be a great analogy for memory because sometimes you're, we're, we're resilient. We're able to build connections and continue learning things when we have gaps. We may maybe never mastered this, so it's maybe it's like a weaker connection, um, and it, you could lose that. You could lose your cues for it maybe more easily because you have some missing important pieces down below. So, yeah, I forget now where I was go. What was our original question? What, how is memory connected to social learning? Okay, so let's let's keep trying here. So that's that's maybe an example of some like analogies. Um, me, I like the idea of maybe thinking of it as like a web because a social network or community can be like a web or maybe like a mind map if you draw that out and there's just lots more of like lines and bubbles and it keeps growing and expanding. So one of the things it makes me think of as you say that and the points you're making before about a retrieval practice and tell me if I'm off base here because I'm making some connections. Um, can this community or this mind map you're talking about be an opportunity for that retrieval practice or the thing that helps you fill the gaps in your Jenga tower? Ooh, it could be. I think you have to be intentional about creating those opportunities and having part of that quote unquote when people say learning culture or maybe part of your mission with your organization is helping encourage a social learning culture that practice is encouraged it's expected and that means that if you do something one time it doesn't mean you suddenly know it you might have multiple shadowing opportunities or multiple practice opportunities before you take on said task all by yourself. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I like the word intentional. Um, what do you, is there any link there, you know, when you talk about memory and intention? I'm taking us totally off base. So please feel free to tell me like, that's not something I explore in my work, but I just think it's interesting that that word comes up when you're thinking about memory, because I, when I think of memory, I'm like, oh, I don't know that I'm always thinking about the things I want to remember. Yeah, definitely. I know we've talked about this before. Um, if you're looking at the information processing theory models, there's a bunch of kind of different versions of them where to take an input in the very first place, it's going to be visual or auditory stimuli. 
And a lot of the times there's this joke about memory athletes who they go to memory championships and they're competing to memorize the most information in the smallest amount of time, whether it's 300 random numbers in like two minutes or uh, two decks of cards and the exact order. Like they, they do all of these crazy feats and then they'll like forget where their car keys are or like where <laughs> they parked. And that's totally normal. It's okay that we like forgot things or maybe you just weren't paying attention in the first place and you completely missed it. Um, and that is just a reality for all of us that we're either going to forget things because we have a lot of things going on, a lot of things on our plate, and you can only hold so much at a time. And again, if you're not doing those things that are reinforcing that retrieval opportunity generation, the things that help you help things make memories more durable, then we're gonna, our brains are going to try to be efficient and get rid of that information. So that's really interesting because I think of like the modern learning organization and the amount of stuff people need to learn is massive, right? And so it's like you have to remember all of these things about all of these different topic areas. What do you do? Like, how do you prepare your brain for that? Do you prepare your brain for that? Is that a choice that learning leaders need to make about what to prioritize? Or can you just flex your brain without limitations? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, yes to a lot of those things that it should, things should be prioritized. Um, if you can break things down and to smaller steps and pieces, that's always helpful. There's no limitation, I think, into the amount of things that we can learn and amass. I do think there's a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily something you need to learn to mastery, which is hard in an organization, which feels like you're constantly learning new things. Is mm. You're learning something for now that might not be relevant soon, but you do need to learn it for right now for whatever performance task that you're doing. Um, and I th maybe there's an opportunity there. If you're doing something that's really pushing you, like you have to learn, but you're not gonna be using it that often, then can you tap someone in your organization? So. I am literally going through this right now as we speak this week. I do not have the most advanced Excel capabilities. And there is a task that I need support with and someone on the finance team who has excellent Excel capabilities and formulas and things is going to help me. And it's something that I've only had to, we've only had to do it a couple of times, but looking forward to the future, we might be doing it more frequently. So this might be a conversation where instead of just passing off this task every time, maybe there's an opportunity for me to shadow the person so I can learn how to do it myself 
And instead of trying to teach myself, because I you don't know what you don't know, and it's like a waste of time when we have people in your organization, so tapping them. But even having that that culture and that opportunity where you can take advantage of your peers and colleagues and the skills that they have, sometimes that's a step uh, prerequisite or foundational step that needs to happen first. I'm sure you know. Um, I was I was this made me think of um, I read this book Daniel Levitin's Successful Aging, and I don't even remember where this came in, but I just thought the story where it is in his book. Um, He talked about Palo Alto Medical Foundation. They have this program called Link Link Ages or Linkages. I'm not sure how they pronounce it. Um, But it's this exchange system with young adults and older adults. But you could apply the same concept in your organization where you're trading skills. So maybe there's a little bit of pro quo um, where like there was an example in this book of like getting rides to the grocery store in exchange for teaching you how to do your balance sheet or your taxes. Um, but in, in, in that way, it's like it's not a top down model, but there's a, an added benefit. If you go back to thinking about it from like a memory perspective, because the act of teaching someone how to do something is an opportunity to do retrieval practice and generation. Mm-hmm. And there's also a metacognitive piece that comes in as well, where there's been studies where people, like they have the skills to sort of regulate their knowledge process, but they don't they don't employ them. They like forget to use them when they're just like studying on their own. But then when they're put in a position where they need to teach someone else, suddenly the, those, thought processes like come into play and they remember like I should be doing this and this should happen as well. So there's just a lot of benefits to that from a social learning perspective. Yeah, teaching other people is definitely a challenge. (laughs) I mean, you never really think about all the questions you have to answer, all the decisions you have to make until you have to show someone else how to follow that decision path. Mm Mm-hmm. We used to call it at COGX thinking out loud, Mm -hmm. and that can also just be called modeling. It sort of depends, but there's things, that's a challenge when you know something really well as an expert, you start to forget how well you know something because, again, your brain's being efficient, so it doesn't need to spend time thinking about little every minutia of, of the tasks that you're doing where someone who's newer, a novice to the task might definitely be thinking about those steps or maybe not. And then if you're able to tap into someone's brain who can say, can think out loud, or even like walk through like what, asking open-ended questions, what would I do next? What information do I need to do my next task? So even if you don't know, it's hard to remember what those, those things are to say out loud. That's why I always love to go back to the metacognitive regulation skills and those kind of stages of planning, monitoring, controlling, and assessing. And I'll translate that too, because my husband is a football fanatic. 
I realized like while I was working again with kids, it was like, oh, a good analogy for this, for metacognition, it's like having a coach. Um, but when you're a football fan, there's like a before the game chat and then like during the game and then the middle of the game where you like talk about what happened during the game and then in a <laughs> post game. So it's like those four stages are like metacognition. So like planning, that's the before the task happens. So like, what do I need? Like, what should I have? What do I not have? How will I succeed going into this thing that I'm about to do? And then the monitoring is like, you're doing the thing. So how's it going? Am I doing what I said I would do? Is like, what's going on? Is something happening? Then the control is like that reaction to the monitoring. So was something not working and you had to change it up? Or did you just keep on keeping on? And then the assess phase, reflect phase is at the end, like what happened? What do I need to succeed the next time I do this? So those, I think, are like a secret weapon, secret power that anyone can use sort of to walk yourself through a task. But even if you're supporting someone else to go through a task and you're like, I don't even know. I've done this so many times, I don't even know where to start. You could sort of like use that framework to walk yourself through helping someone else with a new task. I think that is a little bit of magic sauce because I think of the instructional designer subject matter expert relationship and just having those four questions alone with the SME who's hard to kind of draw information out of is such a powerful moment. And then people who are doing executive development or talking to other areas of the business, trying to gather information from them, you know, maybe you're in the learning leadership position, for example, and working with operations. I don't know. I'm just, but thinking about those four questions, um, those are really powerful for unlocking the stuff you need from them and helping them jog their own memory. So it's interesting because it makes us better social learners to be able to think about somebody else's metacognition. It's like metacognitive, metacognitive practice. It's so meta. And it's even better than the metaverse because it's real. <laughs> and it's here. It's right now. You can do it right now. <laughs> and it's so I think about this as well. But now we do have a lot of generative AI that is easily accessible. And so I wonder how it will change the social structure, but also like the brain and memory when we start replacing those coaches with generative AI. Does it not change because we start to see them sort of like another person or does it change because we stop being willing to reach out because we don't want to ask the silly question? Like those are the things I start to think about listening to what you've been saying. Well, as in, would generative AI replace some of those social connection opportunities where maybe you and I are exchanging our skills or we're practicing teaching with each other? Yeah, like now I have those four questions you've given me, right? The four areas of metacognition. And I'm thinking through something and I can't remember. And so rather than asking someone to coach the answers out of me or asking myself even, I just go to chat GPT and I say, this is everything I do know about this topic. Here's the four questions I want you to answer. Give me the answers. 
I guess my quick thought would be it doesn't have to be like an either or where it's going to replace. I think for some people who maybe they it, it would be very painful to reach out to someone and say, hey, can I exchange some skills with you or Social can you anxiety. help me? Yeah, there could be so many various reasons where like the person that you want to tap is so busy and it is not a great time, but you definitely need to do it today. That is where, you know, that generative AI chatbot is your new personal best friend, like, and has all the time and is just sitting there waiting for you. I think <laughs> there'll be very good circumstances where you could, you could leverage both. I could see a more sophisticated, mature social learning organization finding a way to leverage both, right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I just think of, you know, how we kind of evolved to deal with the things in our environment. And hearing you talk about memory, I'll be interested to see. And, you know, we already have complaints. Nobody remembers anything anymore, uh, whether it's true or not. Right. So I think it'll just, it's just getting further. The rhetoric is getting further already. Like now we don't have to think at all. Yeah, my I guess I don't again, I'd go back to the the Jenga block tower or mountain or trail or whatever it is. Um, people can figure out what analogy works for them. But I do think that it's important to have more knowledge because the more knowledge that you have, the more new connections you can make and the faster those new connections happen. And it's like having your your network of peers in your community when you need to tap into someone for support with some something, the same thing with like your brain and the connections and the information that you have. So if we're moving away from never learning something to remember for a long term, there's long-term consequences in terms of the limitations that you're going to have for creativity, for innovation, for thinking, for problem solving. That would be my case for memory, that you should learn some things. Not everything. You don't need to memorize everything, but some things we should try to keep for long-term. Yeah, which comes back to the priority question. So we are coming near the end of our times together. And so the big question I want to leave thinking about is um, what do you hope that learning leaders will consider as they continue to develop their teams and, you know, their programs for their organizations, considering all you know about memory and even the stuff you know about learning tech and all of the other trends that are happening? Some of the things that we've been talking about, I think a lot about giving permission for time and for struggle. That's where that practice is going to come into play. And knowing that if you're truly learning something, it takes time and it takes practice. How is that being built in? It doesn't mean you have to take things off of people's plate. Uh, does it mean that you switch projects or tasks or responsibilities around when someone is deep in the weeds of some learning project? I think the people who have that power to enable that structure and that safe ecosystem are their learning leaders. And hopefully they're helping to advocate for that type of environment for their community. 
I'm, I could continue to go on with a million things like I wish they would know their science of learning and go to vendors and say, hey, I really wish I could invest in your product, but this is shallow. And what <laughs> I need is something that has practice opportunities and generation opportunities and some social piece where my community and my employees can talk to each other and compare notes like. I mean, yeah, I could go on and on and on <laughs> with all the things that I hope our wonderful learning leaders are doing out there. But yeah, those are just a few for now. Check, check, note, mental noting, all of that. Uh, and I know that was like a really strong ending, and so I don't want to derail us, but I'm going to derail us anyway, because there's one more thing you said that I don't think we explored, and I just want to make sure we do, which was struggle, right? You said a lot about time, priority, attention, mastery, but struggle is an interesting word. Why struggle? It's, I feel like this is a life lesson. Like learning is being, is learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that is basically, you know, applies in any situation, but of course applies in the context of when you're learning new information. If it's not difficult, then what you may be doing is actually a passive strategy that is going to boost overconfidence and you're mistaking familiarity with true knowing. And we do that all the time. We reread something. We look over our notes. We look at, we read, uh, yep, 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 yep. I know that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, go in. And then you don't know it because you were just working on a bad strategy. What would have been more useful would be to close the book, don't look at your notes, practice raw, it's ugly, it's horrible, you mess up a thousand times, but that is that generation retrieval practice, testing effect, whatever you want to call it, opportunity, and we have to be okay, give ourselves permission to make mistakes, for it to be ugly, for it to be uncomfortable, to appreciate the struggle because it's for a good reason. I think that... It's a really powerful, you know, thing we can latch onto and instantly apply. Like, it's just, it's, it's not that it's easy, but like, it's easy. I don't know why more of us don't do it. <laughs> well, that's where the community part could come in too, where the community could be sharing that with each other. So you have that camaraderie, like, here's where I'm struggling and knowing that you're not doing something new alone. I mean, hey, it's awesome when you have peers who are working on the same thing you're learning. That's magical. A lot of times you're learning something new that's different than your teammate. But is there an opportunity where you can cheer each other on and share in a safe space like what blew up and went wrong and they're still supporting you and they're like, this is what went wrong for me. Like sharing some of those things might, um, you know, be helpful. Definitely. So before I let you go, is there anything I should have asked you or that you're super interested in and just really want to share with the audience before we wrap up? I think everyone should read Make It Stick. You should look into Henry Rodiger, Robert Bjork, 
gosh, she has really awesome research about forgetting and interleaving and spacing. Uh, I wrote a TD at Work guide last year inspired by all my favorite memory research, and it was so hard to try to condense that all into 20 pages. There's so many things that I thought I was going to include that just totally ran out of time for, but I hit on a bunch of some of my favorite things about memory and ideas and strategies that people can use. So I'll share that as well. Awesome. I'm going to make sure everyone on my team has read it. Make It Stick is one of my favorite books and the book I recommend everyone starts with too. So I'm going to give that a double check. <laughs> like, go get it. <laughs> oh, I should also say Learning Sciences for Instructional Designers with Clark Quinn. It was the first book project that I got to work at at ATD. And I loved being able to be a part of that process and like building out table of contents. And it is really, really good fast primer for like a high level overview of all the good stuff for the science of learning. Learning Sciences by Clark Quinn. Add that one to your library too. Noted. I don't have that one. <laughs> well, Alexandria, thank you so much for being here today. I know I've personally learned a lot and I hope that everybody listening out there is thinking about how you're going to apply you know, the science of memory and the science of learning and how you're going to think about creating those opportunities for practice and struggle and not necessarily struggling alone. Um, again, just thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're here. And uh, with that said, we will be sharing the awesome assignment in just a second. So stay tuned and remember you can always chat about what you learned with the community of your peers in the social learning lab community. So we will see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Were you able to remember all that? Let me boost your memory with the big takeaways. First, memory is supercharged by retrieval practice and you can create opportunities for practice fierce. Second, teaching others can be a powerful way to boost memory and build metacognition. Third, you're more likely to remember something you struggle to accomplish than an easy task. Having a community to cheer you on can help you keep going when you're challenged. Now, let's put what we've learned into practice. This week's experiment is a training audit. Choose one of the top skills-related learning experiences at your organization. It might be an online course or an in-person training or a piece of content, whatever it is. Determine whether the major concepts are memorable. Use the short assessment worksheet to help you decide. Then come up with one way to improve how you implement that training in the future. And finally, share your results in the Social Learning Lab community on Facebook to get feedback and insights from peers and maybe even boost your memory on memory. Well, Thanks for joining us, and please, if you enjoyed this episode, give us a review, like, subscribe, and share it so we can continue to build a supportive group of learning enthusiasts. Until next time, keep making learning that matters.